Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So let's talk paper scissors. Let's pick up where we left off on our journey through the alphabet, using it as a framework to explore the ABCs of GCM. J is for justified. Cry me a river. Cry me a river. In 2002, Justin Timberlake cried a river. While most listeners believe that JT's smash hit was about his breakup with Britney, I knew the real truth. It's typography. After all, Crimea River was released on his album Justified. It's as clear as black text on white paper. And for anyone who is utterly confused, which is fair, Justified is a form of text alignment. And rivers are unsightly white spaces running vertically down blocks of justified text because of issues with spacing. And designers cry about this problem. Justification happens when text extends to both the right and left sides of a column. In trying to achieve such typographic gymnastics, sometimes unsightly word spaces appear in blocks of justified text. When these larger-than-normal word spaces combine with other larger-than-normal word spaces throughout a block of text, rivers result, and they are unsightly typographic no-nos if we can avoid them. But how do we avoid such unsightly white spaces that impact the overall color of a page layout? Well, there's a few solutions. Number one, you can increase the column width so that the software, such as Adobe InDesign, for example, has more to work with in terms of spacing out the characters across a line. Next, you can make the size of the type smaller, which is in essence allowing for the same additional type of graphic freedom as suggested above. Number three, you can use a more condensed version of your typeface, which again will aid in much the same way as the suggestions for one and two. Remember, however, that it is a bad idea to condense the type yourself. Instead, choose a member of the font family that is designed to be condensed. Number four, you can increase the default amount of hyphenation allowable. Now, Mr. Gutenberg was notorious for going buck wild with hyphens. I mean, almost one third of all the lines in the Gutenberg Bible are hyphenated. And people rant and rave about the overall quality and type color established on his pages. So maybe you can do the same. And number five, choose to left align the text instead creating a ragged right side and eliminating all occurrences of the larger than normal word spaces. Now, whatever river reducing method you choose, you don't have to say what you did. I already know. I found out from Kim in the art department. Now there's just no chance. With U and E, they'll never be. Don't you make him mad about it? Oh, the damage is done. So I guess I'll be retrieving the previous version of my file. Oof. (laughs) Just call me the Weird Al of the type world. K is for kilobyte. 
A kilobyte is a measurement of computer hard drive storage and computer memory storage. While a kilobyte once represented 1,000 bytes, it's more commonly used today to represent 1,024 bytes. Here's some common terminology and how it all breaks down and connects to one another. One is a byte. 1,000 is a kilobyte. 1,000 to the power of two, a megabyte. 1,000 to the power of three, a gigabyte. 1,000 to the power of four, a terabyte. 1,000 to the power of five, a petabyte. 1,000 to the power of six, an exabyte. 1,000 to the power of seven, a zettabyte. And 1,000 to the power of eight is a yottabyte. So what does approximately one kilobyte represent in everyday data storage? Well, about half a page of Roman alphabetic text, one byte per letter, or a short email. In 1956, IBM launched the world's very first computer. It filled an entire room, and the disk drive weighed a literal ton. It cost $35,000 per year to operate and stored 5 megabytes of data. Today, you can buy any number of USB storage devices available everywhere, even at your local corner store. They fit in the palm of your hand, they weigh around 20 grams, and they cost under $10. And they store around 64 gigabytes of data. What could only be described as science fiction less than 70 years ago is now commonplace, everyday convenience that continues to shape our world. Just think where we'll be 70 years from now. I mean, I'll be transposing this text straight from my brain, no typing required, on my disposable computer from the passenger seat of my self-driving hover car on the way to the hologram repair shop. Wild. L is for letting. Letting, pronounced letting, not leading as it seems to be spelled, is a term used to describe the space between lines of text, also referred to as line spacing. It's measured from the baseline of one line of text to the baseline of the text above. The term letting has roots in the first printing process, letterpress, commercialized by Mr. Gutenberg almost 500 years ago. Rectangular blocks of lead were inserted between lines of text to provide breathing space and enhance readability. Today, adjusting letting no longer requires physical blocks of anything, and it can be manipulated at the click of a button. Letting can be adjusted in professional page layout software like Adobe InDesign, as well as word processing software like Microsoft Word and Google Docs. Default letting is typically set to 120% of the size of type you are currently working with, and it provides excellent readability. So when working with 10-point type, 12 points of leading is standard. Adding more lead will provide an airier feel to the document, while removing lead will make the text feel more compact and create a darker document color overall. If the amount of leading is equivalent to the size of type you're using, often when you're stacking capital letters on top of one another, for example, this is known as set solid. M is for make ready. I'm making a list, I'm checking it twice. I'm going to find out what's sheeted and what will splice. In professional printing, just pressing print <laughs> is not a thing. 
The concept of make ready, which includes running through a checklist of items to get the job up and running, comes into play in the press room. Make ready activities include things like reading the instructions for a job, gathering the materials, such as the required ink and paper and printing plates, setting up the feeder and delivery units of the press, and preliminary printing to ensure all plates are in register with one another and high quality color is achieved. So multiple pulls and multiple checks and fine adjustments will be required as part of this process. Make Ready represents the fixed costs associated with printing. Whether you're printing 300 copies of something or 300,000 copies of something, the setup time is roughly the same. Therefore, the costs associated with MakeReady are divided amongst the number of copies printed. If the MakeReady costs are equivalent to $500 of time and material, for example, that value is distributed over the total copies printed, increasing the overall price per piece. Fewer copies means that each will have proportionately more of that cost applied per piece. That $500 make-ready cost costs about $1.66 per piece for 300 copies, but just a fraction of a penny per piece when you're printing 300,000. Make-ready is neither good nor bad, it's just part of the process of offset printing. For this reason, it makes a lot more sense to use offset printing when high quantities are required. N is for newsprint. Newsprint is a relatively low quality, absorbent stock used for low cost printing projects that don't have to last a long time. Although wide newspaper circulation is a thing of the past, newsprint paper provides an interesting material science issue, one to which an elegant solution was found through the world of typography. Now here's the problem. Because of its porous nature, small type doesn't work well on newsprint. The issue is magnified when printing important numbers in the financial pages where readers rely on the accuracy of the data. But when dot gain occurs, sixes start to turn into eights and ones begin to turn into sevens. Dot gain is the spreading or growth of ink beyond where it was originally intended. And this is amplified with highly porous paper. If not actively compensated for in pre-media, as well as on press, dot gain can run rampant, causing letters to fill in and images to print darker than intended. Here's the solution. Enter Retina, a typeface designed by Hofler and Frere Jones for very small sizes. Retina was originally designed in micro plus size for the financial pages of the Wall Street Journal. Printers understand that numbers appearing at 5.5 points on newsprint is a dangerous combination. Therefore, small inkwells, notches strategically set into the characters, may look strange at larger sizes, but they are an ingenious proactive design feature that helps printed ink complete each letter beautifully. After its success on the printed page, it was time for Retina to hit the big screen and the typeface was reworked without the notches and using more conventional proportions for headlines and for larger text sizes. Retina has been revered as a milestone in type design and has been acquired by the Museum of Modern Art for its architecture and design collection. 
leave it to modern type designers to solve a printing problem hundreds of years in the making. O is for offset. Think about it this way. Offset printing is kind of like a relay race. The grippers running throughout the press are the runners, the paper, the baton, and the printing units are the water stations throughout the race route. A series of grippers, these little claws, are strategically placed throughout an offset printing press. Each sheet of paper is pulled into the press by these grippers and transferred at high speed horizontally through the press, always handed off from one set of grippers to the next. There's never a time when the sheet isn't held. But it wouldn't be a race, a printing race, without other helpers making it happen. And these are the hydration stations along the race route, handing out water as the racers go by. Enter the printing units. Each color requires its own printing unit, and there are three main cylinders integral to the smooth image transfer that happens on an offset press. So let's have a closer look at these three cylinders. First, there's the plate cylinder, and this thin aluminum material is wrapped around the plate cylinder, and it contains the right reading view of the printed image, one for each color, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Next is the blanket cylinder. This is a smooth rubberized material called the blanket that's wrapped around this cylinder. It sits below and touches the plate cylinder. The wrong reading version, the mirror image of the image exists here. And finally, the impression cylinder. This hard metal cylinder sits below the blanket cylinder and it comes into contact with that blanket cylinder. It provides the squeeze that's needed for the image to transfer from the blanket onto the printed page, onto the sheet. Paper travels between the blanket and the impression cylinders, and when the inked up image finally hits the paper, it's right reading again. From right reading, to wrong reading, to right reading. The two systems, so horizontal paper travel and vertical image transfer work together to win the race and look good doing it. P is for PPI, or pixels per inch. In the graphic communications industry, there are no shortage of P words to choose from. Points to pikas, page count to pagination, perfecting proofs and presses, oh my. But let's focus on a very important indicator of quality that can make or break an image, PPI, or pixels per inch. PPI describes the detail of an image at a specific size. Images are made up of pixels. Pixels are simply teeny tiny squares of digital color information. So when they sit on a grid beside many thousands or millions of other pixels, all made up of their own single colors, these teeny tiny digital mosaics look like continuous tone images. They look like photographs. But pixel-based images can't be increased in size forever and ever without beginning to look pixelated or beginning to actually see those individual squares of color. Here's how Explainer Academy describes this phenomenon, and I love it. So think of a digital image like a knitted blanket. The pixels are the yarn. 
So when the blanket was made, it was created using a specific amount of yarn. In its original intended size, it looks good. It's tightly knit, it's warm, and it's fuzzy. As you begin to stretch the blanket, the fibers separate and become to look more like a net. You can see the individual grid that makes up the blanket and it no longer functions as intended. Similarly, when a digital photograph is resized, there are only a finite number of pixels available in that image. Pixels aren't added as you resize. Instead, each square of color gets bigger until you can see each individual pixel. In regards to designing for printed output, the partner in crime opposite to raster images are vector images. Vector images are made up of lines, mathematical curves that are resolution independent, meaning that they can be resized up without any concern for loss of quality. Fonts are vector files, and so are digital illustrations created in Illustrator. Now, typically for high quality professional printed output, a raster image must be 300 PPI in its final size on screen in order to look high quality in print. If you increase the size of the image, the size of each individual pixel will increase proportionally with it. That's because raster images are resolution dependent. They are made up of a fixed or finite number of pixels depending on how many pixels were captured in that original file. The number of pixels in a photograph is the direct result of the device that was used to capture the image. So a 24 megapixel camera will produce an image with a greater amount of color information or more pixels than a four megapixel camera. So now that you have that information, grab a cozy blanket and get busy resizing your images in Photoshop to make sure that they are the right resolution for print. Q is for choir. An individual piece of paper is called a sheet and a choir is the smallest unit to measure a grouping of identical sheets of paper. And it's actually 25 sheets. Now it's not a commonly used term, but here's a rundown of what various groups of sheets are called. 25 sheets is one choir. 500 sheets or 20 choirs is one ream. 1000 sheets is 40 choirs, two reams or one bundle. And 5000 sheets are 200 choirs, 10 reams, five bundles or one bale. So if you need new ways to describe quantities of paper, now you've got it. R is for ream. As we just explored, a ream of paper is defined as 500 identical sheets. When you buy paper for your printer, it typically comes in a ream. However, diving down the deep hole that is the internet, led me to learn that there's a long history of the ream. Apparently, the 500 sheet ream has only been that way since the late 20th century. Who knew? Here are some other ways that the ream has historically been defined. 472 sheets is a mill ream. 480 sheets, a short ream. 500 sheets, also called a long ream. 504 sheets, a stationer's ream. 
516 sheets, a printer's ream or a perfect ream. So if you need a new way to describe a single quantity of paper, now you've got it. And also, a big shout out to my colleague with a great name, Reem Elisale. There are more ABCs of GCM to come in the next episode, so stay tuned.